Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 At the very moment when, when we've had mentioned that all the daughters of music must be brought low before we can really assess the situation, the chorus comes in. Now remember the priests have said uh, in this dialogue with the messenger and so on, they've said, well, is it war, peace? Uh, and the messenger says, well, it's peace, but not it's neither an end or nor a beginning. And so they have not, they have just been trying to patch the thing up like everybody else, you see, uh, and, and are either optimistic or pessimistic or resigned. And as Gerard has said, a radical Christian appropriation of history will have to be apocalyptic. And so we get the chorus, they come in and they say, here is no continuing city. Here is no abiding stay. Now that's a decidedly apocalyptic tone that they begin their chorus with. Ill the wind, ill the time, uncertain the prophet, certain the danger. Oh, late, 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 late is the time, late, too late, and rotten the year. The hour is late. See, we're talking about the end, and an end. Evil the wind and bitter the sea, gray the sky, gray, gray, gray. O Thomas, return. Now, the second priest, happy to have his, his uh, leader return, says, hey, Thomas returns. The third priest says, let the wheel turn. And the chorus says, O Thomas, return. Archbishop, return, return to France. To France. Though, though the chorus is speaking out of, so to speak, out of its gut and not out of its head, it is speaking apocalyptically. It is not, it, it understands that what they're faced with is an end. The word apocalypse means uh, an unveiling, a revealing, means re to reveal and to unveil. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the moment of the death on the cross, the veil of the temple is rent in two. That's the revelation. Now, the two things about the rending of the temple veil, one is that the radical of all the separations, the separation on which all other separations depend is the separation between the sacred and the profane. The separation between what's on one side and the other of that temple veil. God's on one side and everybody else is on the other side. And at the moment of death on the cross, that veil is torn asunder. The incarnating thrust of God is made manifest and that veil will no longer stand. For our purposes, there's something else that we have to see here. At the moment of death on the cross, the veil that has provided and symbolizes the mystification between us and the sacrificial altar is torn. We now can see the sacrificial event for what it is because we do not have that veil in front of us. 
because what happened on the cross is the clear manifestation of that whole episode. This is what the world does. So the veils provide the awe that surround the sacrificial event, that keep us at some distance from it, and keep us reticent to probe any further, because we're awed by it. We feel reverence toward it. We don't want to approach it. We have this in Second Corinthians. Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not notice the ending of what had to fade. Now, you know, Moses, when he came down from the mountain, his face was radiant, so he had to veil his face. But the, but the Pauline interpretation of that in 2 Corinthians, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not notice the ending of what had to fade. To this day, that same veil is still there when the Old Covenant is being read, a veil never lifted since Christ alone can remove it. Yes, even today, whenever Moses is read, the veil is over their mind. The revelation hasn't occurred. It is still veiled in the kind of mythologization that allows the sacrificial thing to continue. He goes on, if our gospel does not penetrate the veil, then the veil is on those who are not on their way to salvation, the unbelievers whose minds the God of this world has blinded. That's the struggle. That veil and the gospel. The gospels have to be involved in the business of unveiling so that we can see what has to end. He says, uh, so that they would not notice the ending of what had to fade. And that's the sacrificial uh, enterprise that has sustained culture up to now. Well, the chorus is gradually working themselves towards a moment of revelation, dragging their heels. And so they say to Arch to Thomas, return to France. You come bringing death, doom on the house, doom on yourself, a doom on the world. They recognize the apocalyptic nature of the situation. And then in this little thing that I'll read here, it, it's essentially a review of first history, then nature, then, then their social interaction. In a sense, say, well, it hasn't been the best, but we've accommodated. We've accommodated. And having accommodated, we, I think we can tolerate it. We don't want to, to have something break in on us. We don't want the veil to be torn away. That's the thing about accommodating to the veil. And pretty soon you don't want it to leave. So here's what they say. We do not wish anything to happen. Seven years we have lived quietly, succeeded in avoiding notice, living and partly living. There have been oppression and luxury, there have been poverty and license. There has been minor injustice. Yet we have gone on living, living, and partly living. Sometimes the corn has failed us. Sometimes the harvest is good. One year is a year of rain. Another a year of dryness. One year the apples are abundant. Another year the plums are lacking. Yet we have gone on living, living, and partly living. We have kept the feast, heard the masses. We have brewed beer and cider, gathered wood against the winter, talked at the corner of the fire, talked at the corners of streets, talked not always in whispers, 
living and partly living. We have seen births, deaths, and marriages. We have had various scandals and so on and so forth. But now a great fear is upon us, a fear not of one but of many, a fear like birth and death. So not a patched-up affair that's neither the beginning nor an end, but something that is both at the same time. Birth and death at the same time. It's another constant interest of T.S. Eliot's. And then they say, O Thomas, our Lord, leave us, leave us to be in our humble and tarnished frame of existence, which is what the Grand Inquisitor said. O Thomas, our Lord, leave us and leave us to be in our humble and tarnished frame of existence. Leave us. Do not ask us to stand to the doom on the house the doom on the archbishop, the doom on the world. Archbishop, secure and assured of your fate, unafraid among the shades, do you realize what you ask? Do you realize what it means to the small folk drawn into the pattern of fate? So there you have the frame of existence, humble and tarnished though it be, is much preferable to being drawn into the pattern of fate. They are being compelled, slowly compelled, to witness what Gerard calls the founding murder, while only incompletely intoxicated by the mythological narcotic. Everybody else kind of is innocent, in a way, of what's going on, but somehow the women of Canterbury feel it, and they would rather not face it. They would rather not be forced to witness it. And they say at the end of their chorus, O Thomas, Archbishop, set sail for France. Thomas, our Archbishop, still our Archbishop, even in France. Thomas, Archbishop, set the white sail between the gray sky and the bitter sea. Leave us, leave us for France. Now, they have said nothing about the veil. I brought the business of the veil into this. But since the veil and the, and the white sail are both fabrics, the, my mind went to work on this, and I saw here tremendously fascinating. And that is, you know, the white sail in legends and myths and so on often represents, take, for instance, in the Tristan and Isolde myth, uh, it represents the sign you give to those towards whom the ship is sailing to tell them whether or not the, the one who has been departed is returning dead or alive. The black sail means they're dead. The white sail means they're alive. So the daughters, and, and this is, Eliot's intimate with all of that association. So he says, the chorus says, give us a white sail on the horizon. They say, we would prefer a white sail on the horizon to a sundering of the veil of the temple right before our eye. What we would like is for the Christian vision to be a rumor on the horizon and not a present obligation. I said earlier, I think Eliot is exploring in this play the dilemma for the church in the modern world. And this, to me, goes to the heart of it. It's so much more comfortable to see it as a hope on the horizon than to suddenly have it break in to the whole historical complex and demand that it be witnessed.
and let it uh, take precedence right now, right here. The chorus here is reminiscent a little bit of the officers that were part of the court-martial in Billy Budd. Remember when Captain Veer began to let it be known that he was going to support the execution of Billy Budd, the officers began to fidget in their chairs because they sensed they were going to have to witness a sacrificial event without being completely under, to, to use a metaphor of anesthesia, that they were going to have to witness the event without being completely anesthetized, mythologically anesthetized to it. And so they begin to fidget. And likewise, the papal legate in the movie The Mission, when you see him anguishing, it's anguishing, he's anguishing because he's not going to be completely anesthetized to what's going on and he's going to have to witness it anyway. And even participate in it. And in the, in the New Testament, it's Pilate. Pilate being outside of the Jewish mimetic vortex that has really brought Jesus to the, to the court doesn't want any part in this. You have to begin to understand how we are all this chorus. We don't want to have it break in on us. Here's what uh, Andrew McKenna, who teaches at Loyola University, uh, wrote recently. He said this, The fundamental ambivalence of the sacred as holy and accursed, as beneficial and terrible, is the consequence of the paradoxical role of the victim in the foundation of culture and of sacrificial violence in the preservation of culture. So the fundamental ambivalence of the sacred is, is in a sense, what the chorus is feeling. They are going to witness the ritual without being completely drawn into it mythologically. And the second priest hears this and he says, hey, come off it, will you? Our guy's coming home. Remember, our guy's coming home. What a way to talk at, a, at such a juncture. You are foolish, immodest, and babbling women. The crowds in the streets will be cheering and cheering. Whatever you are afraid of in your craven apprehension, let me ask you at least to put on pleasant faces and give a hearty welcome to our good archbishop. And while he's speaking these words, actually while the chorus is still singing their, their lament, Thomas enters. And then Thomas speaks. First word, peace. And that's what the play is about. Everybody in this play with the possible exception of the tempters, want peace. Everybody wants peace. The knights want peace, and they try to get peace by violently suppressing the opposition. The priests want peace. The official representative of the church, they want peace, and they, want to get, they try to get peace by compromise, flight, and barricade. They try. They want. They want to have peace by finding some little, some little piece of turf that is sufficiently uninteresting to the main culture that they can be left alone in it. So they want peace, and the chorus wants peace because they want to just remain unconscious. 
they want to just go about, be caught up in it again, and go, go about the, round, the daily round again. Everybody wants peace. And Thomas says, peace, and let them be in their exaltation. They speak better than they know and beyond your understanding. And then, in case we wonder what Thomas did in France in between the conferences and the meetings, um, he did a lot of thinking, apparently, because he now delivers himself of a, an amazing few lines. Speaking of the Course, they know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. They know and do not know that action is suffering, that suffering is action. Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act, but both are fixed in an eternal action, an eternal patience, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, for the pattern is the action and the suffering, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. That was not written in order to make sense. So you can... Uh, it was written as a, I, I'm, I'm convinced, as a kind of lifelong koan. It's the distillation of what this play is all about and what Eliot is so interested in exploring. Is it possible to act without being concerned about the fruits of one's action? Is it possible to intend something without desiring something? Is it possible to will and not be caught up in self-will? And what is the role of suffering in the mystery of life? I uh, was rereading the uh, Langmead Casserly essay on Gabriel Marcel, and I thought of this passage in it when I was going over this uh, speech by Thomas. In the last resort, a prophet who is not a poet must keep silent, and a prophet who is a poet cannot be understood. This, after all, was the perennial dilemma of the Hebrew prophets. There is perhaps only one way of resolving this particular dilemma. Let the prophet but die in Jerusalem, and he will not have lived in vain. You can, you can see why I thought of that passage when I was reading Beckett. This is the, the prophet here is more Eliot than Beckett, but uh, uh, he has just arrived back in Canterbury, where he knows he must come to die. Having spoken the, the weightiest words in the play, the second priest, who's eager to have his leader return and tell him what to do, remember he says he's going to come back and tell us what to do? First thing Thomas says is, action, suffering, this whole mystery of willing and consent and all of that. And uh, the guy who was so eager to hear what the archbishop was going to say about what to do says, Oh, my Lord, forgive me. I did not see you coming, engrossed by the chatter of these foolish women. Forgive me, my Lord. I would have given you a better welcome if I'd been pre prepared for the event and so on. I've put fires in your room and I've da-da-da-da-da. He says nothing. It's, it's as though Thomas had come along and said, Hello. Completely ignoring what Thomas has just said, which is, goes to the heart of the play. Thomas allows us how his political enemies are still hovering. He says, For a little time the hungry hawk 
will only soar and hover, circling lower, waiting excuse, pretense, opportunity. But once the, once the whole sacrificial momentum has begun to build, then it's simply a matter of time. And in the meantime, what will happen is the temptations. Thomas says, heavier the interval than the consummation. That's very Miltonic. You know, Milton wrote, Paradise Regained, and the regaining of paradise has to do with what happens in the temptation in the wilderness. And once those temptations are survived by Jesus, then going to Jerusalem to, to preach or to die is simply uh, something you do after the fact. That's easy. The hard thing is the temptation. And Thomas essentially says the same thing. The most difficult thing about this is going to be the temptations. And he says, echoes that later on in the play. And so we get the four tempters. Thomas had had a pretty lively and robust youth. So the first tempter comes along and says, uh, we could play it again, you know. You could come back and uh, enjoy life again. He comes as the, the bon vivant who says, hoping that your present gravity will find excuse for my humble levity. Remembering all the good time past, your lordship won't despise an old friend out of favor. Old Tom, gay Tom, Beckett of London, your lordship won't forget that evening on the river when the king and you and I were all friends together. We could do it again, he said. Fluting in the meadows, vials in the hall, laughter and apple blossom floating on the water, singing at nightfall, whispering in chambers, fires devouring the winter season, eating up the darkness with wit and wine and wisdom. The beautiful lines, because they allude to a, a covering over of the dark season, more than of anything that would be truly transcendent. Later on, Thomas says, oh, those are, those are all old seasons. They're past. They're not worth, remem- not worth forgetting. And the tempter says, no, I speak also of a new season. Spring has come in winter. Snow in the branches shall float as sweet as blossoms. Ice along the ditches mirror the sunlight. So that's his version of spring, when the sun mirrors off the ice in the ditches. Easy to overcome this tempter for Thomas. Then at the end, he reveals the danger underneath all of this glibness. He says, take a friend's advice, leave well alone, or your goose may be cooked and eaten to the bone. And Thomas says, you've come 20 years too late. And the tempter, then I leave you to your fate. I leave you to the pleasures of your higher vices, which will have to be paid for at higher prices. And, of course, it's true that Thomas resists all the tempters. Every every, uh, uh, resistance to the temptation is brought about by recourse to his pride. So every time he resists one of these tempters, his pride deepens. And, uh, of course, the tempter gets a... the, The final shot of each of these tempters is interesting, and this one's final shot is... If you will remember me, my Lord, at your prayers, I'll remember you at kissing time below the stairs. And Thomas says, So one thought goes whistling down the wind, so that the mind may not be whole in the present. In other words, he's been tempting me to the past. And so now comes the tempter who will tempt him to something in the present. And this is the tempter who reminds him of his days as the chancellor. And he says, 
you, master of policy, whom all acknowledged, should guide the state again. You should be chancellor again. And that could be arranged. And you could have power. And power, after all, is what you're after, is it not? Because what we're trying to do with power is to make a better world. He says, king commands, chancellor richly rules. This is a sentence not taught in the school. To set down the great, protect the poor. Beneath the throne of God, can man do more? Disarm the ruffian, strengthen the laws, rule for the good of the better cause, dispensing justice, make all even, is thrive on earth and perhaps in heaven. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Make the world a better place. And Thomas uses his pride to overcome this temptation. Shall I, who keep the keys of heaven and hell, supreme alone in England, who bind and loose with power from the Pope, descend to desire a punier power? And so the tempter's final shot to Thomas is, your sin soars sunward. This is true. But I would like to compare the tempter's invitation to temporal power with Thomas's rejection of it after the tempter leaves. The tempter had said, look, take the reins of temporal power and protect the poor, disarm the ruffian, dispense justice. And when he leaves, Thomas says this, temporal power to build a good world, to keep order as the world knows order, those who put their faith in worldly order, not controlled by the order of God, in confident ignorance, but arrest disorder, make it fast, breed fatal disease, degrade what they exalt. In other words, to impose order on a world with power is to institutionalize the disorder, is to use official and institutional violence to prevent random and unofficial violence. And the third tempter comes along. The third tempter is one of the barons who has been wrestling with the monarchy for power. And he's, by his own estimation, a straightforward man. No trifler, as the first tempter was. No politician, he says, as the second tempter was. He's a country lord. It is the country lords who know the country. And we who know what the country needs, it is our country. We care for the country. We are the backbone of the nation. He says, unreal friendship may turn to real, but real friendship once, once ended cannot be mended. Sooner shall enmity turn to alliance. The enmity that never knew friendship can sooner know accord. And Thomas says, that's pretty tricky talking. What are you getting at? Well, here's what he's getting at from Billy Budd. Hiss, Billy, said the man, in the same quick cautionary whisper as before. You were impressed, weren't you? 
Well, so was I. And he paused as to mark the effect, but Billy, not knowing exactly what to make of this, said nothing. Then the other said, We are not the only impressed ones, Billy. There's a gang of us. Couldn't you help in a pinch? You see that? He says, Let us conspire to overthrow the authority. You, We could make alliance with you. And then he begins all of that rationalization that goes into that. King is in France, squabbling in Anjou. We are for England. We are in England. You and I, my lord, are Normans. England is a land for Norman sovereignty. Let the Angevin destroy himself fighting in Anjou. He does not understand us, the English barons. We are the people. Relying on his pride once again, Thomas says, Shall I, who rule like an eagle over doves, now take the shape of a wolf among wolves? And as the tempter leaves, Thomas says, To make them break, this thought has come before, the desperate exercise of failing power. Samson in Gaza did no more, but if I break, I must break myself alone. And suddenly a voice says, Well done, Thomas. And he had not expected that voice. He expected only three, not four tempters. And the fourth tempter reviews the other three. And he says, you, have, you were right to reject those other three. Hooks have been baited with morsels of the past. Wantonness is weakness. As for the king, his hardened hatred shall have no end. So that takes care of the first two tempters. As for the barons, envy of lesser men is still more stubborn than king's anger. So he says, you were right to ignore their temptation. Thomas says, what's your advice? Fair forward to the end. What is pleasure, kingly rule, or rule of men beneath the king? That's tempters one, two, and three. Pleasure, kingly rule, or rule of men beneath the king. What is pleasure, kingly rule, or rule of men beneath the king with craft and corners, stealthy stratagem, to general grasp of spiritual power? Man, oppressed by sin since Adam fell, you hold the keys of heaven and hell, power to bind and loose. Bind, Thomas, bind. King and bishop under your heel. Think of glory after death. When king is dead, there's another king. One more king is another reign. King is forgotten when another shall come. Saint and martyr rule from the tomb. Think, Thomas, think of enemies dismayed, creeping in penance, frightened of a shade. Think of pilgrims standing in line before the glittering jeweled shrine. From generation to generation, bending the knee in supplication, think of the miracles by God's grace and think of your enemies in another place. See that? Bind, Thomas, bind. This really is an echo of Samson in Gaza did no more. Destroy your enemies in the final act by letting them destroy you and committing such a heinous crime that they will suffer in all eternity. But then he goes even deeper. Instead of just remembering all the people coming to his shrine as martyr, he says, you have also thought, sometimes at your prayers, sometimes hesitating at the angles of stairs, that nothing lasts. 
But the wheel turns, the nest is rifled, and the bird mourns, that the shrine shall be pillaged and the gold spent, the jewels gone for light lady's ornament, the sanctuary broken, and its stores swept into the laps of parasites and whores. When miracles cease and the faithful desert you, and men shall only do their best to forget you, and later is worse, when men will not hate you enough to defame or execrate you, but pondering the qualities that you lacked will only try to find the historical fact. When men shall declare that there was no mystery about this man who played a certain part in history, so sooner or later the Freudians will have at you, or whoever, and they'll they'll find out what you, what good qualities and bad qualities and how you fit into a certain event. And Thomas says, is there no enduring crown to be won? Yes, Thomas, yes. What can compare with glory of saints dwelling forever in presence of God? What earthly glory of king or emperor, what earthly pride that is not poverty compared with richness of heavenly grandeur. Seek the way of martyrdom. Make yourself the lowest on earth to be high in heaven. And see far below you where the gulf is fixed, your persecutors in timeless torment, parched passion beyond expiation. Now let's reflect on this. He says, seek your martyrdom. Seek to make yourself lowest on earth to be high in heaven. Now, when the gospel turns the world upside down by saying, those who are the lowest shall be the highest, that is a far cry from saying, make yourself the lowest in order to be the highest. It's often been perverted into that, but that's a tremendous perversion because that's just part of the little game. And so the tempter says, he perverts it exactly that way. Make yourself the lowest. Make yourself the victim in order to play the trump card. Here's what Girard says. The Gospels never present the rule of the kingdom under the negative aspect of self-sacrifice. Far from being an exclusively Christian concept, self-sacrifice can serve to camouflage the forms of slavery brought into being by mimetic desire. What might be concealed here is the desire to sacralize oneself and make oneself godlike, which quite clearly harks back to the illusion traditionally produced by sacrifice. So this is to participate in the primitive sacred and come away with your own sanctity intact and 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 condemning everybody else in the process to be to to uh, containment in the illusion when you read this little passage from the tempter for the eighth time that's how long it took me about to finally see what the key words in this passage are the key words are Compare and compared. 
and they both indicate that the mimesis has survived all the way to this point. The tempter says, what can compare with glory of saints dwelling forever in the presence of God? What earthly pride that is not poverty compared with the richness of heavenly grandeur? He's still comparing himself to his opponents. And then it says, see far below you your persecutors suffering eternal torment. Now, the paradigmatic sacrificial episodes in the New Testament, which are faced by Christ and the first martyr, at the moment of culmination, Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Breaking the chain. Forgiveness breaks the chain. And this tempter tries to carry the mimetic thing all the way to the conclusion so that one gloats over the fact that one's persecutors are suffering forever in hell. Thomas rejects it, but almost despairs. Is there no way in my soul's sickness does not lead to damnation in pride? Can sinful pride be driven out only by more sinful? And the tempter says, you know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. You know and do not know that action is suffering and suffering action. Neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act. But both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. And this is devastating. When your deepest wisdom is quoted back to you by Satan himself, your deepest truth comes back to you. And Thomas is plunged into a Kafka-esque, Dante-esque pit of confusion. And what brings that pit of confusion to us in the play is the chorus and the tempters and the priest all together uh, filling our ears with the confusion that is filling Thomas's head. The chorus says, there is no rest in the house. There is no rest in the street. I hear restless movement of feet. What is the sickly smell, the vapor? This is, this is in Dante's Inferno, this corresponds to the moment when Dante took off the cord and threw it into the pit and the monster of fraud came up. The four tempters say, man's life is a cheat and a disappointment. All things are unreal. Imagine this is going through Thomas's head. All of a sudden, the ground has been cut out from under him. And it's his pride that has led him to this moment. And the difference between Thomas and Dante, you see, this happens to Dante when he takes off his cord and throws it into the pit, and the monster Gerion comes up. But Dante has Virgil, and Thomas does not. So the question is, what will come of that? What goes through his head is, man's life is a cheat and a disappointment. 
all things are unreal. Unreal or disappointing. The Catherine wheel, the pantomime cat, the prizes given at the children's party, the prize awarded for the English essay, the scholar's degree, the statesman's decoration, all things become less real. Man passes from unreality to unreality, from grandeur to grandeur to final illusion. This is to point out that clearing the ground where decisions are made is not a painless process. And the three priests say, do not sail the irresistible wind, abide the coming of day. And then the chorus and the priest is a kind of collapse of consciousness here. Is it the owl that calls or a signal between the trees? Is the window bar made fast? Is the door under lock and bolt? Is it rain that taps at the window? Is it wind that pokes at the door? Come whispering through the ear or a sudden shock on the skull. A man may walk with a lamp at night and yet be drowned in a ditch. A man may climb the stair in day and slip on a broken step. A man may sit at meat and feel the cold in his groin. And the chorus finally drives it all home. We have not been happy, my Lord, have not been too happy. We have seen the young man mutilated, the torn girl trembling by the mill stream, and meanwhile we have gone on living, living, and partly living. They have seen the victim, but they've managed somehow to put it into the context or rationalize it in one way or another and go on with the process. We have seen the young man mutilated, the torn girl trembling by the mill stream. And meanwhile, we have gone on living, living and partly living, picking together the pieces, gathering faggots at nightfall, building a partial shelter for sleeping and eating and drinking and laughter. God is leaving us. God is leaving us. Referring to all the talk about the death of God, Girard wrote this, what is in fact finally dying is the sacrificial concept of divinity preserved by medieval and modern theology. Not the father of Jesus, not the divinity of the gospels, which we have been hindered and still are hindered from approaching precisely by the stumbling block of sacrifice. In effect, this sacrificial concept of divinity must die and with it the whole apparatus of historical Christianity. For the, in order for the Gospels to be able to rise again in our midst, not looking like a corpse that we have exhumed, but revealed as the newest, finest, liveliest, and truest thing that we have ever set eyes upon. And that's what the women are feeling. God is leaving us. God is leaving us. The leopard, the bear, the ape, the hyena, all of the, all of the uh, lords of hell are here. Suddenly the whole system is collapsing. This is the apocalyptic moment. This is when the veil is rent and all the mystifications are falling apart and we're beginning to see it for what it is. O Thomas Archbishop, save us, save us, save yourself that we may be saved. Destroy yourself and we are destroyed. And he hears them 
at a deeper level than they speak. And in, and in fact, they save him. Because they provide him with the one thing that makes martyrdom what it is, and that is the communion. It's always the giving of one's life for one's friend. And up to this moment, that has not entered Thomas's mind. And that's the sin of pride, you see. The sin of pride is the sin against community. And now he realizes that he is part of a community and that they are dependent upon him and that what he does will have to do with whether or not the spirit survives this episode that's about to befall them. In the film, The Mission, remember Father Gabriel's martyrdom. He did not submit to martyrdom because of some principle. He submitted to martyrdom because of the Guarani, because of the Indian tribe, because of his people. It's the community. In the epilogue to the Gospel of John, Peter, who has denied Jesus three times, is given an opportunity to affirm him three times. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Of course I love you. Why do you keep asking me these questions? I love you. Feed my sheep. Then he says, when you're a young man, Simon, you get up, you put the belt on, and you do what you choose. But when you get older, you will lift up your hands. Someone else will put the belt around you and lead you where you would rather not go. And the, and the gospel text says, parenthetically, this he said to show by what death he was to glorify God, namely his martyrdom. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and then a reference to martyrdom. Always done in the context of communion. Has to be done in the context of communion. As soon as any of these other motives come into it, it's perverted. To become a martyr, to do it for principle, for any of the rest of it, but only for the community. And suddenly, hearing the chorus at a deeper level than they hear themselves, Thomas says, now is my way clear, now is the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. And then he rehearses the temptation in uh, beginning with the fourth one and then returning to the first three. The last temptation is the greatest reason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. And then he rehearses the other three. The natural vigor in the venial sin is the way in which our lives begin. Thirty years ago, I searched all the ways that lead to pleasure, advancement, and praise, delight in sense, in learning and in thought, music and philosophy, curiosity, the purple bullfinch and the lilac tree, the tilt yard skill, the strategy of chess, love in the garden, singing to the instrument, were all things equally desirable. Ambition comes when early force is spent. And then now he's not talking about the second temptation. And notice, all of that early part is just when everything is desirable. And he says, ambition comes when early force is spent. That's the point at which the desire becomes rivalry, ambition. You can mark it in the text. You can put your 
pencil to the text and make a mark where it shifts from mimetic desire to mimetic rivalry. Ambition comes when early forces spin. I beat the barons at their own game and so on and so forth. He concludes by saying to the, to the chorus and the priest, I know what yet remains to show you of my history will seem to most of you at best futility, senseless self-slaughter of a lunatic, arrogant passion of a fanatic. I know that history at all times draws the strangest consequence from a remotest cause. But for every evil, every sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression, and the axe's edge, indifference, exploitation, you and you and you must all be punished, so must you. And at this point, he's talking to the audience. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now, when he says everybody must be punished, he doesn't say, if you notice, he doesn't say for every evil, sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression that you commit, you shall be punished. He says for everyone that is, you shall be punished. This is very much like Jesus in the Gospel of Luke saying, this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Because once the veil that has camouflaged all of that victimization is removed, one has to face one's responsibility for participating in it or for receiving the cultural benefits that have flowed from it. And one is no longer immune from the moral consequences of being a recipient of cultural benefits that have required sacrificial episodes. Now, my good angel, says Thomas, whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's points. At the end of the temptation in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, version of Jesus' temptation in wilderness, Satan leaves and the angels come and minister to him. So as Thomas finally overcomes the, the final tempter, his good angel comes to minister to him. But he is saved from this final tempter by the women of Canterbury. And what they teach him is that he has a community, that he is not above the community. He is not Coriolanus, who is going to somehow, in his transcendent position, save these people. He has to recognize his oneness with them. And in that, his martyrdom will have consequence. The chorus is so fascinating, particularly in the first part of the play. It's so fascinating because they, to put it in the terms we're talking about, they would rather have this Christian thing be a, a rumor on the horizon than to suddenly break in and become a revelation about the present situation. And, if, and when the martyr comes in and is, once one witnesses the sacrificial event without the cultural narcotic, it's apocalyptic. It suddenly shatters all of those illusions and they fall away. What the play is showing us is a slow-motion apocalypse on the part of the women of Canterbury. And they're being drawn towards it and they don't want it. None of us do, you know. And as they resist it, the closer they get to it, the more truth they speak. They say here, right before Thomas's triumph over the last tempter, 
They say, we know of oppression and torture. We know of extortion and violence, destitution, disease, our sins made heavier upon us. We have seen the young man mutilated, the torn girl trembling by the mill stream. And meanwhile, we have gone on living, living, and partly living. That, I think, is a commentary on us and our time. All of us could say those words. We have, on the six o'clock news, seen the young man mutilated, the torn girl trembling by the mill stream, and meanwhile we have gone on living, living, and partly living. We don't realize we're being brought to that apocalyptic moment. There are two apocalypses. There's the apocalypse that happens when the revelation is suddenly one sees, without the myth mythological veil interposed, one sees the, the thing for what is. That is the that's the apocalypse. The spiritual apocalypse takes place in the person. And the other apocalypse is what happens if not enough people wake up and the sacrificial cult has to increase its, the scope of its victimization in order to continue to convene enough awe to keep everybody in line. We started saying to witness, uh, the word witness comes from the word for martyr. Christianity is in the business of training witnesses, training martyrs. And I'm sure we typically think, well, that, that may mean at some point that I have to face the persecutors and all that. Seems to me helpful to turn to this passage where the women say, we have, we have seen the young man mutilated and the torn girl trembling by the millstream and gone on living and partly living. That is to say, you know, martyrs, martyrs everywhere and not a revelation. You know, it's not as though we need more martyrs. The world's full of them. What we need is witnesses who can identify what in fact is happening. People who have witnessed it without the cultural narcotic 